Good morning, everyone. I'm Peter Gettler. It's my honor and privilege to be president and CEO of the Cato Institute. Welcome to our Focus on Fiscal Leadership, the launch event for Cato's 2020 Fiscal Report Card on America's Governors. We'll be taking questions online from social media, so please engage with us using the hashtag CatoEcon, C-A-T-O-E-C-O-N. As you all know, Cato's work encompasses the full range of policy issues, from protecting civil liberties to defending the Constitution, making the case for restraint in the use of our military, to less government intervention in our lives and our economy. Fiscal issues, of course, will always have a prominent place in our work, as our voice for spending restraint and fiscal responsibility becomes more important, and I have to say a bit lonelier as the years go by. Well before any of us had ever heard of COVID-19, spending at all levels of American government has been growing on an unsustainable and extremely concerning path. This is an issue of tremendous importance because taxing and more importantly spending represents the burgeoning cost of government all citizens are being forced to bear. And hence it represents an important while only partial measure of the liberty and freedom that we're losing to the growth of government. Runaway government spending may also be the moral issue of our time. For as the political class increasingly abandons the rhetoric, let alone the action of fiscal responsibility, we're at grave risk of putting the economic well-being of future generations at risk. Thus, flirting with fiscal bankruptcy is indeed morally bankrupt as well, since we, the most well-off generation in the history of the planet, may be jeopardizing the future of the ability of future generations to realize their version of the American dream. As a general matter, state governments do a better job than the federal government in managing their finances, since there are many checks by both law and financial markets that help limit the profligacy and fiscal irresponsibility that can be practiced by our states. But within this generalization, the records of our states and the nation's governors vary widely on spending, taxes, and overall fiscal rectitude. So for three decades, every two years, Cato has issued its fiscal policy report card on the nation's governors. And as you all know, the 2020 report is launched this morning. For years under the leadership of Cato's Director of Tax Policy Studies, Chris Edwards, the report card objectively scores governors on the basis of seven tax and spending variables, calculating a numerical score and assigning an A to F letter grade to each governor. Thus, the methodology considers only facts and numbers, not politics, in ranking the governors and states on the basis of their fiscal policies. Governors receiving an A are those who have cut spending and taxes the most, whereas governors receiving an F have increased spending and taxes the most. In a better world, the report would award 50 A grades every year and eventually put itself out of business. But alas, governors making that grade are relatively few and far between. This year's report has awarded seven Fs and 14 Ds, but sadly only four As. We're grateful to have one of those only four governors receiving an A in 2020 here with us this morning, Governor Christopher Sununu of New Hampshire. In fact, Governor Sununu received the highest numerical score of any governor in the report. He also improved upon the B grade he received two years ago, although we'll have to ask Chris Edwards whether the governor earned only partial credit for that B grade since the 2018 report didn't encompass a full two-year term for Governor Sununu. He began serving his first term as governor of New Hampshire in January 2017. We'll also have to ask Chris Sununu if the sting of that B grade spurred him to pursue the tax and spending policies that would ensure he notched an A in 2020. I should actually point out that the report 
awarded only nine Bs this year. So that's a really good grade nonetheless. But we congratulate and applaud Governor Sununu for earning the highest grade and highest score of any American governor in the 2020 edition. We're delighted to have Governor Sununu with us this morning. New Hampshire is a small state, but it's an important symbol of good government and sound fiscal management. Moreover, Governor Sununu's record shows that fiscally responsible policies can attract broad public popularity and support. Other states should look to the New Hampshire model and to Governor Sununu's outstanding example of fiscal leadership. Chris Edwards will be providing an overview of this year's report card, followed by a Q&A session with the governor. But first, we're gonna hear from Governor Sununu, one of, as I said, our few A students. Governor Sununu, once again, congratulations, and take it away. Well, thank you very much. Um, I can't tell you um, what it means. It, it, it's really uh, incredible, uh, honestly. It's something that you hear about for a lot of years and, and to receive this recognition um, is great because it's, as you know, it's a numerical number, data-driven recognition. I'm a very much a data-driven individual. Uh, my, in my previous three or four lives, I was an engineer uh, coming out of MIT and then in a ski resort. I ran my own business for a long time. And you know, something we always talk about is there's always a concept of you have to run the government like a business. You really can't do that because in a business, it's our money, right? We can write a check and we can make investments directly, but in the government, it is the people's money. And so you do need that inherent checks and balances. But the key point is bringing some of those business philosophies, business ideals and practices into the public sector uh, to hopefully spur the change, inspire folks to think a little differently, think a little bit out of the box, and it all starts with good management, of course. Um, you gotta build a good team around you. You have to allow those ideas to come onto the table, ideas that maybe in previous administrations were thwarted, seen as politically dangerous. Put everything on the table, do it in a very transparent way and allow it to uh, allow folks to understand the pushes and pulls and the data behind that. Uh, I'm a big believer in the economy. Uh, a strong economy creates opportunity for the public sector. So we've been very forceful about, again, trying everything we can to cut taxes, deregulation, all those things that allow businesses to thrive. What do they need? And then get out of their way. The best thing the government can do is get out of people's way. And putting individuals and businesses first is a, one of those philosophies uh, we try to bring to the table. Kind of like in business, uh, it's customer service, right? So how do we service the customer, not how do we penalize the customer? Um, you know, one thing I, I noticed when I first became governor is you'd see governors in, in really good times. They would say, well, times are good. Uh, businesses and, and people, they have profits, they have some extra money, so it's okay to tax them a little more. But then when times were bad, they would say, well, times are really bad. The, the government has shortfalls in revenue, so we have to tax you a little more. It was like this never ending cycle. One way or another, the government always has an excuse for sticking it to you. That was kind of the pattern for many, many years. And that's kind of the cycle that we're trying to break. And when you can lead by example, and again, not just do it from a policy standpoint, but to get the outcomes that we've received and, and that we have, we have an incredibly strong economy here. Uh, even through the COVID crisis, we had, I mean, 2.4% unemployment, I think the day before we had our first COVID number back in, in February. Uh, and then obviously we had to make some tough decisions. Uh, unemployment spiked to about 17%, but because we put those businesses first, we've taken the right proper steps, kept our COVID numbers low, but graduate, gradually opened up with stakeholder input, not the government telling you what to do, but allowing the stakeholders to have a lot of that input, would have been able to open things up. And now we're back down to about four and a half percent unemployment. It's shocking that we're getting excited about four and a half percent unemployment, but we really are on a very strong track. So it's just about putting others first as opposed to big government. And then finally, when the economy does well, 
and you have more money in the till, you don't spend it on more government. You give it back. You give it back to the cities and towns. You give it back to the individuals. Now, we don't have an income tax here. And I vetoed that bill twice and I'll veto it till the, till the day is long if they ever try to keep putting that on my desk. But uh, our tax base on the state level is built on business taxes. And so you send that back to cities and towns and back to those to offset some of the property tax expenditures that do hit, hit, hit folks. So while I can't, as governor, force a town to cut their property taxes, uh, constitutionally we can't do that, I can send them cash. And when we have the extra money, that's where it's going to go. It's going to go right back for those long-term investments, right? One-time money for one-time investments, whether it be infrastructure or just sending it back for, for those cities and towns to offset their taxes. So we're just trying to bring some of that type of common sense. I mean, it goes obviously a lot, lot beyond that. Um, getting an A from Cato is huge. Um, and I'm not going to lie to you. The first person I'm going to call is my father to show him I can get A's. Uh, they were a little hard to come by at MIT back in the day, but... Uh, um, you know, it's just, it, it's an incredible honor for such a reputable and, and worldwide renowned organization to recognize uh, the fruits of your labor. I guess as a public servant, you figure, well, with all the criticism and, and accolades, it's all political anyways. And you, you kind of just throw that noise aside. But this is an organization that just means so much to so many folks. It, uh, people do see it as a truly independent, uh, if I may, smart organization that looks at data uh, and actually holds people to accountability and results. And, and for that, um, I, I cannot thank you guys enough. Well, thank you very much for those uh, uh, comments, Governor. And thanks again for uh, receiving the highest grade in, in our report. As, as Peter noticed, uh, noted, you, your polling shows you are one of the most popular governors in the nation. And you know, while at the federal level, both parties seem to have uh, thrown aside fiscal, fiscal conservatism, it is really good to know that conservative budgeting uh, still gains widespread uh, popular support, at least in some states. So that's really good news. Uh, I'm gonna give a, a quick four minute overview of the Cato report. Uh, then the governor and I will discuss some of New Hampshire's fiscal policies. Uh, Cato has been doing the governor's report uh, since 1992. Uh, governors who have restrained taxes and spending the most uh, received the highest grades. Uh, the report does reflect Cato's preference for smaller government but it's absolutely a nonpartisan and based on hard data. Uh, this year, Governor Sununu received the highest score. New Hampshire spending has been restrained in, in recent years, and the governor has opposed numerous tax increases. Uh, there were three other A's on our report. Uh, governor Kim Reynolds of Iowa uh, signed into law a major tax reform that cut income tax rates. Uh, governor Pete Ricketts of Nebraska has restrained spending and passed income tax reforms. And Governor Mark uh, Gordon of Wyoming has overseen spending cuts, and he's resisted uh, imposition of income taxation in his state. Uh, state governments uh, are facing big challenges during this recession, uh, but it's also true that this is after many years of economic growth. Uh, average state spending over the last decade has increased at a 4.1% annual average rate. Now, the responsible states have saved money. They've put money aside in their rainy day funds. Uh, for example, California, to its credit, uh, got burned in the recession a decade ago and has built up a very large rainy day fund this time around. Uh, but some states uh, did not learn the lesson from the last recession. Uh, Illinois went into this recession with absolutely nothing in its rainy day fund. Uh, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker was one of seven governors who received an F on the Cato uh, report card. Uh, despite the recession, uh, Governor Pritzker uh, is increasing 2021 spending substantially, partly based uh, on borrowed money, and that makes no sense. The other F governors this year were Northam of Virginia, uh, Como of New York, Whitmer of Michigan, Murphy of New Jersey, 
uh, Brown of Oregon and Inslee of Washington State. Uh, Inslee was the lowest scoring governor uh, this year. He entered office in 2013. Uh, and since then, uh, general fund spending has increased at an annual average rate of 6.9%. Now compounded over seven years, that is a large expansion in government. When Inslee originally ran for the governor's office, he promised not to raise taxes. But since then, he's proposed or enacted an endless stream of tax increases, energy taxes, capital gains taxes, real estate taxes, gross receipts taxes, sales taxes. Uh, in 2019, Inslee approved a new payroll tax on all workers in Washington state to raise about a billion a year. Uh, Governor Inslee has also uh, long pushed to impose a new carbon tax, but Washington voters uh, have rejected a carbon tax by overwhelming uh, majorities at the ballot box twice in 2016 and 2018. So my point here is that there is a large gap between the fiscal restraint of the A governors, such as Governor Sununu, uh, and the F governors uh, on the Cato report who've, uh, who've, uh, who've pursued expansionary policies like Jay Inslee. So the Cato report discusses uh, the main tax and spending actions uh, by each governor. It also discusses some topical issues in state finances, such as rainy day funds and marijuana tax revenues. So now let's turn our attention uh, to New Hampshire. Uh, New Hampshire's finances are unique and fascinating as we're gonna explore today. So again, thank you uh, for joining us today, Governor Sununu. And uh, I've got uh, some questions uh, lined up uh, for you here about uh, New Hampshire finances. So that, you know, the first, my first question regards the overall tax burden. New Hampshire residents uh, pay much lower taxes than, than their neighbors. Measured as a percent of income, uh, state local taxes in New Hampshire are 14% lower than Massachusetts, 27% lower than Maine, and 28% lower uh, than Vermont. Now, some folks might think, well, maybe New Hampshire provides you know, worse services than the neighboring states, but I noticed that U.S. News uh, and World Report uh, uh, scored uh, New Hampshire schools, K-12 schools, as the third best in the nation. So what is New Hampshire doing right here? Are you simply, do you simply have more efficient government than your neighbors? Um, I think efficiency plays a big part of it, right? When, when you have an efficient government, um, you can put the resources where they need to go. This doesn't mean, uh, people shouldn't confuse efficient government with just massive cuts across the board and all that, that sort of thing. Efficient government is saying, look, here are our priorities. Here are areas where we can be smarter about the spend. Here's the redundancy, uh, getting rid of a lot of regulations. And actually we, we've gone through and looked at virtually every program in the state. And then we compared them both quantitatively and qualitatively to the redundancy factor. There are so many programs, for example, in, all, in most states where the Department of Education and the Department of Health and Human Services have massive overlap because a lot of programs and services for children come through the schools, but they're usually health and human services based. So when you go through, we found that something as simple as bringing those two, two departments together, right? When the left hand and the right hand know what they're doing, um, it wasn't like we were forcing the, the state employees to do something they didn't want to do. They loved the idea of coming together, creating a, a better system. When you empower the, the bureaucracy of your government, um, it's amazing what they'll step up and do. Uh, they want to be part of better solutions. They really do. And so at the end of the day, by making them part of that, uh, the whole system got, got much more efficient. And again, like I said, when we started, you focus on the economy, that creates a lot of opportunity at the state. And then you take all that extra money and you send it right back down 
uh, you create opportunities for those businesses, those individuals, mostly at the property tax level, where the majority, if you look at a percent, the majority of our taxes are paid at the property tax level. Um, comparing yourself, I, I got to be honest, it's, it's great to be, you know, have our, a tax burden that is much less than Massachusetts and Vermont and New York and Connecticut and Rhode Island and Maine. But uh, that ain't hard. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> Most states are going in the absolute opposite direction. Uh, and so that's why you see so many businesses and families flooding into New Hampshire. You know, one thing I say during this pandemic, uh, people have always had a decision, right? That's the 21st century. You have a decision whether your family wants to stay in a certain area, you want to keep your business in a certain area, whatever it might be. 2020 is forcing people to make that decision. That choice is becoming a decision. And they're actually moving and, and actually picking up roots and, and saying, well, I can do better. And doing better is going to the place where we're going to empower individuals with an efficient government. And so Again, it's a model that works. Part of my last two years with the Democrat legislature, I don't mean to get political, but um, is, is really, again, vetoing the income taxes, vetoing the regulations, vetoing that kind of nationalized playbook that doesn't work. We're very different in New Hampshire. We're very proud of it. Yeah. And, to, you know, building on that, if you look at we have very good interstate migration data that the IRS publishes and New Hampshire really does stand out in the Northeast. New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Vermont, all have consistent out migration from their states, whereas New Hampshire enjoys uh, net in migration. So you've touched on some issues. Are there other policy advantages that you think New Hampshire has? I mean, why do people uh, move into New Hampshire, but they're, they're moving out of your neighbors? So um, first and foremost, there's a quality of life issue here, right? The idea that we can have very high wages, uh, very low unemployment. So everyone who has, wants a job effectively is going to have a job. You have a great quality of life with experiencing the outdoors and the rivers and the mountains and the lakes and all of that, a good life balance, but you can still be very much connected to a place like Boston. If you want to be part of that, of that urban center, and Boston's a wonderful place. I love Boston. I love New York. Um, but if you don't want to actually live there and have the taxes and the traffic and the bureaucracy, you could literally be 30 miles away in the tax-free suburb of New Hampshire, right? That's effectively what we are. We're the tax-free suburb of Boston. So when you add all those pieces together, uh, you just get to this point where people are realizing they're making that decision. I, I was on CNBC about a month or two ago, and I was pretty blunt when I said it was almost like somebody went to the Brooklyn Bridge and hung a sign that said, last one out, turn out the lights, because everyone was just saying enough of this New York nonsense with the riots and the COVID. And you can't even you know, park your car for less than 50 bucks in New York. You can't drive in without them hitting you for something. And then they, they tell you, well, in again, in tough in times are tough, so we need more money. The government should not be the priority, right? The people and the businesses, they have to be the priority. I, 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 it drives me crazy when I hear other governments say, we need, we need. They keep using that word need. I do not think that word means what you think it means, but government seems to get away with it all too often. But it's about, again, just making sure we're having a bit of a change in philosophy, empower the efficiencies and empower those to bring those efficiencies with accountability. It's, uh, it's, it's management 101. That's right. And, you know, families, of course, need, uh, you know, money themselves for their own uh, priorities. Uh, you know, and you, so you've touched on something here that there's a broader freedom issue here. Cato publishes an annual Freedom in the 50 States report, which assesses not only economic freedoms, but civil liberties as well. And New Hampshire usually ranks first or second top in the, in the country on, uh, on that scale. But, you know, uh, dramatically, Vermont is ranked 46th. Uh, uh, and Maine is ranked 39. So New Hampshire not only has more economic freedom, but more general freedom than the nearby states. So, you know, is there something in the water sort of in New Hampshire or uh, is it the structure of government in New Hampshire that you think keeps government limited? What do you think the answer yeah. is? 
So for, uh, for those who don't know, our structure of government is very, very different. First and foremost, um, the citizens have all the say. We have the largest legislative body in the country next to the U.S. Congress. We have 400 members of our House of Representatives. They all get paid 100 bucks each, which means they got to really want to be there. And they're really serving their communities at a micro level. And so the citizens have a direct voice because if, if you don't know the cell number of your local representative, well, you just haven't asked, right? So everyone can have direct connection with somebody that is going to create policy that directly impacts their life. Because most of our taxes are local in the property tax base, we still have town meeting. It's not some old tradition. It is an incredibly powerful tool for citizens to have. They can walk into their town meeting in March once a year and have a direct say on their budget, which is the vast majority of their taxes. So they have a direct say what's happening in their schools. School contracts are done, again, at the local level, local control. Very, very important tool. And then you, at the state level, you just have such a representative body. Then we have this thing called the Executive Council. The Executive Council is a five-member group elected every two years, pure checks and balance on the power of the governor. So no one individual has ultimate power for too long. And then here's the big one. As a citizen, I love it. As a governor, it drives me crazy. Every one of us, all the representatives, all the senators, the Executive Council, the governor, you could fire us every two years. Every two years, we all have to get reelected. So again, this complete accountability to the process. Some people would think that that puts more politics in, right? Because you're always running for office again. But it, it, it's just not like that here. I think folks understand you got to get stuff done. And if you get rid of the politics and get a lot done, then you can spend the four, five, six months, whatever it might be, running for office. But it's not like you have to run every, you know, be truly running every two years. Um, you have to come up for election. But it's all about getting stuff done. And, and we tend to be a very purple state, right? One year more Republican, one year we're more Democrat. And that again, forces us to really work across the aisles and just, and try to achieve goals. Now, when you gotta make tough decisions, you gotta make tough decisions. I'm the first Republican governor since the Civil War, fully Democrat legislature. Um, in my first term, I had a fully Republican legislature. So I've, I've kind of seen both sides of that coin, both sides of that spectrum. We created a great model in 17 and 18. We had to hold the line and say no to the income taxes and the tax increases and all that sort of stuff in 19 and 20. And then we'll see you know, where we go in 21 and 22, but hopefully we've at least set a precedent of accountability and standards. Um, and so that you know, it's me or someone after, I think it's gonna be me, but uh, after this election in 21 and 22, we're actually, we're just building off the successes that we've had as opposed to trying to reinvent the wheel every two years. Yeah, to, to that, that that's all all sounds very uh, true to me. And to drill down a little bit on the you know on the structure of government uh, to to uh, inform our, our listeners today, you know, New Hampshire has no general sales tax. It's also got no broad based personal income tax. It gets most of its state local revenues from property taxes. Now, interestingly, you know, property taxes, according to public polls, are the most disliked type of tax in America. And I know you know in New Hampshire, there's been battles over property tax levels and school funding and the like. But it does seem that um, you know one reason why government in New Hampshire remains small is that the main tax is kind of a very visible one that you know people can appreciate the cost of government uh, because they see it in their property tax. So there's there must be sort of a love hate relationship there. People don't like property taxes, but it is a good uh, it it does represent the cost of government to them. Uh, you you've hit it right on the head. I've always said when it comes to let's say federal taxes, right? The federal income tax you have to pay. I think every American should have to write that check. Not that the number should go up or hopefully down, but if you had to actually write that check out of every paycheck every week, get to feel the pain a little bit, it would be tax reform in this country immediately, 
right? Because there would be a revolution. People would finally be truly realizing, wait, you're, you're taking this from me. You're forcing me to give something to you instead of this whole, we'll just take it out of your check before you notice it's even gone. Right. right. Property taxes work like that. You have to write that check. You go down to your town hall. You got to put your money in escrow. You see it. You feel it. And then all of a sudden it's gone and you got to save again for your next property tax bill. And because of that, people stay very uh, invested because it truly is an investment with their town and their local officials and their leaders. And they hold them uh, as accountable as anybody. So um, it's the, it is a more painful way to do your taxes, but it really drives much better accountability and ensures that the people not just have a say, but they want to have a say. And they're going to let you know. In New Hampshire, uh, you know, I'll be walking up the cereal aisle in aisle six and someone will turn to me and say, hey, governor. And, you know, they'll make sure I know where they stand on an issue. And the selectmen and the budget committee get it even worse because everybody knows their name and every one knows where they live in a lot of our smaller communities. And so they know they're going to be held to an account, uh, an accountability and a standard. And it's a, it's the best checks and balance of, of government you can have is the people having the power on any of the local officials. Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, uh, the other 49 states could certainly learn a lot here. I mean, and you touched on this, too, that, you know, government New Hampshire is very decentralized. Just looking at the tax data here in New Hampshire, 61 percent of all state local taxes are local whereas the US average is 43%. And so it's that decentralization that seems to, to help limited government, uh, to limit government as well. But let's jump on to energy taxes. Um, what's called the Transportation and Climate Initiative is a project of the states in the Northeast uh, to impose a regional emissions cap, which, which would raise gasoline prices and it would be like a regressive gas tax hike. Now you've said that New Hampshire will not join this emissions tax plan. Uh, you know, and one issue that I think is important is that, you know, my understanding is this emission system would work at the wholesale level. So residents wouldn't even know they would see the gas uh, uh, prices going up. They wouldn't know that the government was responsible for that increase in gas prices. And that goes to what we're talking about, uh, about visibility. So can you explain your position on this uh, transportation and climate initiative? Sure. This, this was a big deal. And we were watching this for about a year, really led by uh, Massachusetts and Charlie, where it was kind of driving the boat with a, a lot of other states. I think they had something like 13 states that and we were involved in the discussions. We kept telling them, if this isn't designed the right way, it's not going to work. And, and they wouldn't really say exactly what their, their thought process was. So they allowed us to participate. We could kind of see it from afar. As soon as we saw where this thing was going, I, I, again, I said, we're going to we're not going to partake in this. They didn't seem to care. They came out and made their announcement. It was going to be, I think, on day one, something like a 17 cent gas tax to 13 states across the Northeast. And as you just pointed out, it was going to be this hidden thing behind the scenes at a wholesale level. And they said, well, it'll go to investing in urban public transportation, which is a fine idea if you want to invest in that. But really what that means is all these rural states are going to be subsidizing, you know, the debt of, of, of Massachusetts and the MBTA and Boston and all of these things. And so while I can appreciate Charlie's, uh, you know, thought process and Governor Baker and I get along great. Um, but uh, we came out, I think, within about 20 minutes of that announcement and said, uh, -uh no way, we're not part of it. And we strongly encourage other states to, to do the same, to look deep and understand the numbers. Don't be fooled by any of this. It sounds nice politically, transportation, climate initiative, but with deep down, it was going to whack people right in the pockets. And uh, so we led the charge. Sure enough, other states kind of followed our lead. I think they might, other states might still be going forward with it, which is fine. Look, if that's what Massachusetts wants to do or, or Maryland or New York, God bless them. That's on them. 
but you can't come up here and try to basically ask us to subsidize your debt um, you know, with our get with a hidden gas tax. It, it's why we said no to tolls, right? They wanted to increase the toll taxes here in New Hampshire. And I said, we were about to vote away from it until I stepped in and said, absolutely not. Well, it's just a quarter. It's another 25 cents, Governor. It's another 50 cents. Yeah, at the end of the day, that's 400 bucks. That's a lot of money to most families, right? So, you know, it's, it's the typical, you know, we've, we've talked about it for years. We've heard about it for years. The gover government literally nickels and dimes you. They literally say, well, what's a half a percent? What's the big deal? What's a percent here and a half a percent there? And before you know it, within five, 10 years, uh, your half a percent income tax becomes five or 6%. Government is just spending tons of money. Your systems and, and programs haven't really gotten any better, but, they but the government has more security. You don't, as a family, you don't as a business, but the government feels more secure. Look, as the head of government, I'm telling you, don't buy into what the government is trying to sell you all the time. You gotta really do the numbers and hopefully have the leadership there that doesn't mind saying, this might not sound politically convenient, but it's the right thing to do. Yeah, there's a very interesting parallel uh, here too with the whole issue of paid family leave. Uh, you vetoed a mandatory paid leave uh, bills uh, in New Hampshire that would have imposed a new statewide wage tax on all workers. Uh, you, you've noted that it would undermine New Hampshire's no income tax advantage. There's an interesting federalism uh, story here too that some states uh, like Massachusetts uh, have passed mandatory paid leave bills while other states like uh, New Hampshire and Vermont have rejected a mandatory approach. So Vermont Governor Phil Scott has also vetoed mandatory paid leave bills uh, in his state as you have. Um, at the same time, there's been, you know, there's a movement um, federally to impose a top-down paid leave, uh, mandatory paid leave uh, from Washington that would sort of, uh, that would be uh, pushed onto all states. Now, it seems to me that, you know, if New Hampshire and Vermont have, have clearly expressed their opposition to a mandatory approach in favor of voluntary approach, Massachusetts, they want to go the mandatory uh, direction. That is fine. That is diversity. That is the genius of American federalism. And so maybe you can tell us a little bit more about your thinking on paid leave. Sure. So look, I, I'm a supporter of paid leave in concept, because here in New Hampshire, we designed a way to do it with the private sector. And it would be a choice, not mandatory. If you want to buy into that insurance package, that's essentially what paid leave is, uh, an insurance package. We did a, a preliminary uh, run and we had about 10 to 12 different companies come to us and say, yes, we want to be part of this. We will help manage the system. We know the actuarial tables. We can manage it. And the way we did it is essentially the, the state would pay as part of our, our benefits package for just our state employees. We have lots of benefits for them already. For a couple million bucks, we would pay to have paid family leave for our employees. And that massively large pool would drive premiums really, really low that then everybody else could share the benefit of across the state. But then you have the choice as an employer or an employee, the choice of whether you want to buy into that plan or not. The Democrats had a very different plan. I'll say the other side of the aisle, the Democrats, whatever you want to call them today. Um, they said, no, it's mandatory. It's 0.5, the payment shall be 0.5% per wages per employee, but it's not a tax. Payment shall be 0.5 of wages. Sorry, it's a premium on wages. I mean, this crazy political speak, a premium on wages, a, it's a, a, it's, they try every linguistic piece of gymnastics that they can find, um, but at the end of the day, it's a tax. And at the end of the day, they can then raise it and do other things with it. And they shouldn't be making the government effectively the insurance company. That's what, when these states that do paid family leave and mandatory, they're effectively hiring hundreds of people 
to make themselves the insurance company for all of those that have to be mandated into it. The government shouldn't be part of an insurance company like that at the state level. So you bring the private sector in, right? Name any, almost any insurance company in the country would, would love to get be part of this. And they all clearly wanted to be here. So what we're trying to do is uh, change the model and say, there's a way to do it with private sector with a little bit of innovation. These mandatory models have failed throughout the country. They've brought their states to the brink of financial collapse. They always very often have to be additionally subsidized. But if you do a private sector approach, you really can make it work. And I still think, again, our, my paid family plan with a private sector approach is the is the successful model. I've talked to the president and the administration about it. I've talked to folks in Congress. I think there's a nationalized model to be there as well. It's all about choice, right? You know, it's it should never be about the government forcing another buck out of your pocket for something you don't want to buy. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, let's jump to regulations uh, for a, a minute or two here, and which ultimately is a fiscal issue because it affects uh, state government costs. You focused on reducing unneeded state local regulations uh, to boost growth uh, in New Hampshire. You know, related issue is the pile of federal federal regulations that come top down from programs like housing on education and the like. And if there was a national paid leave program, there would be you know a problem of federal regulations uh, falling down on the states and raising costs. So, what are some of the frustrating federal mandates that New Hampshire deals with, and what can we do about it? Um, all of them. <laughs> really? Look, two words, a block grant. The amount of money that would be saved if they would take some of these massive government programs and just write a, the check, if you will, to the state government and say, look, we finally are appreciating that New Hampshire and New York and Arizona and California and Michigan are all very different states with different priorities, different demographics, different socioeconomic challenges. And we're going to allow states to make the investments as they best see fit and allow the state's true federalistic ideals uh, of the constitution come to bear. Um, it's wonderful when the, when the federal government can provide financial support, but the amount of money you would save alone in just aid federal bureaucracy, I know the lawyers would probably not like it too much because they'd be out of a job you know, pretty quick in Washington, but at the end of the day, that's far and away the best way to do it. I can't find a single federal program that I think is better run by, by Washington DC than the state of New Hampshire. I mean, by definition, other than the military, right? Let's stick with the military. They do a great job there. But other, pretty much other than that, um, no, it should be at the state level because we can create the efficiencies that the federal government just doesn't have the ability to do. And, you know, a lot of folks, one of my bigger frustrations isn't just with the regulations, and I'm going to be a little harsh here, Republicans and Democrats alike in Washington, they talk a good game, but then they get there and they sit on their hands, Right. They're afraid to actually say, we're going to truly dig deep. We're going to truly try to innovate. We're going to whiteboard it. All the businesses out there, they know they, they know. sometimes you got to get tough and whiteboard a situation and start from scratch. Take some of the, your losses to get your long-term gains back into play. That's one of the ideals that we think we do very well here. Now, at the state level, when you create efficiency in government, what you effectively do, um, it could be something as simple as instead of a, a two-hour application to get you know help, uh, some sort of government assistance, it's a 20 minute application. There's accountability, it asks the right questions, but it's simple. What we found is when the government creates a simplified process, it puts pressure on the cities and towns to match us with the simplification, to match us with the lack of bureaucracy, right? Because no city and town wants to be the, the tougher than the state when it comes to being the gatekeepers, if you will, to better customer service. So it all, like, like any company or any business, 
Um, it starts from the top, I think, setting a good example, uh, empowering those and asking other folks within your departments, your divisions, your cities and towns, whoever you want to look at it, to match you in that quality of service. Uh, and so it takes a little time to get there. We, we got rid of 1,600 rules and regulations uh, within the first few months of, of being governor. In my first summer, uh, I signed an executive order and wiped them all out. And again, that set a tone for our departments, which later set a tone for our cities and towns. So there's an aspect to just leadership here in showing that and being very transparent about it. Look, not everything we do is going to be perfect and not every uh, path we take is going to be the ultimate final answer. I'm an engineer. I'm all about designing a, a, a the best system I can, knowing that you rarely design the perfect system the first time. Government tends to do that. Here's the law, here's the system, we'll leave it and we'll, we'll come back in five years and take a look at it. Terrible way of doing business. You yeah. need to design a system with that flexibility, right? If you create a system with flexibility and own up to say, hey, we tried A, B, and C, A and B work, but C didn't work so well, that's okay. We're going to pivot our funds and resources from C into over here. We already have another idea there. Be flexible so that ultimately you're just getting the best product at the end of the day. So many folks, especially on the legislative side, want to pass a law, pat themselves on the back and move on. But it really takes the operationalizing and the innovation, if you will, to keep these systems accountable to the results that you want to see. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I think block grants on, on a lot of areas would be a great first step forward. There is no doubt just casual observation of the, the way the federal government works and the way state governments work, that once the federal government uh, goes down one path and imposes a certain system on all 50 states, uh, Washington is so rigid, their policymakers don't accept that they need to reform and adjust down the road where state governments you know, they're all experiments. Some, some work, some don't, and they learn, states learn from each other. And uh, this is, uh, you know, I really fear, uh, particularly, I think there's, you know, lots of, you know, new, new federal ideas about Green New Deals and paid leave laws and the like, which would be top-down impositions. Uh, I think it would put this, uh, the states in a real straitjacket, which uh, would be really unfortunate. So the last question I've got for you today um, is on rainy day funds. Um, state governments uh, went into this recession a lot more prepared than the recession a decade ago, to their great credit, at least most of them uh, did. Average rainy day funds in the 50 states today are about double uh, before the last recession. Uh, so do you think that this was a tough recession for a lot of state and local governments? I mean, do you think that states have kind of learned a valuable lesson here? You, we never know when a recession is going to come. And so the, the message, it seems to me, the lesson is that, you know, states should be frugal. They should pay down their debts when they can, and they should build up large rainy day funds ahead of the next recession. Absolutely. Could not agree more. Um, I, as far as the rainy day fund, ours is still too small. I can tell you just in New Hampshire, it's never enough for me. It re, it's really not. Um, I, I ran, I, I worked in the skiing industry for a while and it literally, we literally needed a rainy day fund because when it rained, uh, no funds were coming in. And so it really taught you the difference between, again, account, accounting for on a gap basis, a cash flow basis, seasonality, planning for that rainy day, if you will, literally sometimes. Um, and just being prepared, because at the end of the day, you have a responsibility to the obligations that you've made, especially in the public sector. We've made certain obligations to be there for certain programs that we've passed legislatively, to be there for certain citizens that are relying on whether it's something as simple as the DMV being open or something as complicated as um, programs that help in, uh, that are more progressive in terms of abused kids and mental illness and substance use disorder, things of that nature that we're always challenging ourselves with. Those are obligations we have to be there for. Um, and, and good management can get you there. Some of these states that, I, that just borrow themselves out of oblivion 
Because again, their priority is just covering their back, covering their previous bad decisions. Well, people are leaving those previous bad decisions. California, New York, even Washington, Oregon. These states, uh, people are running out of these states left and right because finally, unfortunately, the policy is catching up with them. Now, we don't want to see anyone not do well, but that's just a shame. It's really a shame. And so you know, the, the problem with politic, politics, if you will, is everyone has this massively short memory. In the moment, there's a crisis. And, you know, for the next couple of years, hopefully the states learn from it. They build up those reserves when they can. Uh, but eventually they get they get lazy. Governments get lazy when not held accountable. And so you got to make sure that there's that feedback response system, whether it's through a better electoral uh, election process or whatever it might be, so that they are kept on their toes and they have to be kept to their word. When they say they're going to cut taxes, you've got to at least fight to cut the taxes. Understandably, you might have to fight your legislature and there's a checks and balance there, but at least fight for it. Do what you're going to say. Stand behind those principles. And if, if the dollars aren't necessarily adding up, make tough decisions. There is always a way to get out of a fiscal crisis without new taxes. That has been proven time and time again. It might be pleasant. It might require some strong leadership and tough decisions, but it's the absolute obligation. That's the number one obligation that we take with us uh, as elected officials. So there's always a better way to do it. Now, we talk a lot as governors. Uh, governors have to innovate. They have to be, for the most part, they're held much more accountable than Congress and Senate. I mean, Congress and, and the Senate in, in Washington Where's the accountability? I mean, let's think about what their job is. Their job is to approve a policy, approve funding, and then they're kind of done. I mean, what else do they do? Congress and Senate doesn't have to innovate or design or implement or create accountability or metrics or standards. They don't have to do any of that. Governors do. And we need to be held accountable to that. And we work together a lot. Um, I think some governors try to play the political uh, angle a lot more than others. But at the end of the day, um, you know, I'm a big believer that and I've always said this and I'll say it forever, I think only a governor should ultimately be president, right? Or only a CEO should be president of the United States because you have to have some management responsibility before taking over the ultimate management job. Uh, Congress and Senate really don't have that uh, in, in their repertoire. So again, accountability is, is paramount. Holding those politicians accountable, not just today and tomorrow, but for the long term is really paramount. And getting the citizens engaged, I think, is the best way to do that. That's what the, the, our, our founding fathers created the federalistic system based on, on that sense of accountability, on local control, and making sure the people had the final say. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And there's no doubt. I mean, just watching Congress and also state budgeting for many years that, you know, the, for federal policymakers, unfortunately, the incentive is just to pass um, a program and not to worry, uh, worry too much about how it actually works because it's the spending amount that seems to be important to them. Whereas at the state level, you've got to worry about how programs actually really work and you make adjustments uh, as you go on. So thanks a lot for, uh, for coming on today uh, with us, Governor Sununu, and congratulations again on your uh, grade and thanks for restraining government in New Hampshire. I mean, uh, New Hampshire really is, uh, you know, it's an important symbol in America of good government and sound fiscal management. So we appreciate it very much. And thanks for everyone uh, for watching today and tuning in. Uh, the governor's report is available uh, at cato.org. Thank you.